Well, let me begin by saying thank you to the many people who this week reached out to me and Natalie, and I, I'm, sh- I'm sure they did also to Benjamin um, and Brooke, but uh, there was a tornado that hit our hometown, Jefferson City, Missouri. Some of you maybe heard about it. Um, and uh, a lot of people wanted to make sure my family uh, was okay. Benjamin's family moved away a number of years ago, so they don't live there any longer. Uh, but my family is all fine. And in fact, really, everybody in Jefferson City is fine, which is an amazing fact because the tornado really started from the south end of the city, right in the middle, and tore its way north all the way to the Missouri River and just decimated a good swath of the community, and no one was killed, which is hard to believe when you see some of the destruction and devastation. Um, Many people have wanted to know how to pray, And I think, you know, our our normal thinking is to pray for those people who have been injured and to pray for the healing of God on them, uh, to pray for those who have been left homeless and to pray that God would be able to um, provide homes for those people. But here is my challenge is to really think about praying for Jefferson City and other places like this in terms of the gospel opportunity that is now there. That there would be a witness in that city and anywhere where things like this happen, a witness that points to the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So pray for the church in Jefferson City and pray that that church would come and be a great example of Christ's love and that the gospel might move forward. That is a prayer that should be of high priority to us in situations like this. Uh, In today's uh, sermon, we're going to get a chance to look at Paul's prayer, and what I just said about praying for Jefferson City is going to apply. But I wonder how many people here actually know that this church, this coming fall, is going to celebrate its 20th anniversary. It was planted almost 20 years ago now, and a 20th anniversary is coming up. Uh, It was a church plant out of Hershey Evangelical Free Church. And uh, we have a goal today, and many of you know this, to be a church that plants churches. And so we have a goal and we have a plan and we're going to try to plant a church in the coming years, God willing, in the city of Harrisburg or somewhere around this area that needs a good gospel-centered church. That's our goal. I mean... The reason we exist is that a church planted us. And we want to see that happen uh, in the future with, with another church, a church that we might be blessed to plant. But what, when you think about that, you look back and you say, 20 years ago we were being planted, and you look to the future and say, and we're going to go about that business, that work in the future. What about that is challenging? What does that mean to plant a church What are the obstacles that will be before us? Well, certainly the secular world around us isn't always friendly to the gospel, is it? And so as we plant a church and even as we exist as a church, there are many things that the Bible preaches and that the Bible teaches that will not be palatable to the world that is around us. That's a great challenge that we face, isn't it? It's especially a challenge to a very vulnerable church plant. 
that, that the society might be hostile to it. Another challenge is, of course, to live in a way that brings honor and glory to God because churches are gatherings of people like you and like me, and people are rebellious, sinful, and ugly oftentimes, aren't we? Come on, this is where you nod and you recognize you're a sinner. All right, we're all sinners. That's a challenge. It's a challenge because we are called to live lives that are different, that bring glory to God. And so a church plan and even an existing church has to really struggle to live in a way that testifies about uh, the grace and the mercy and the love of God and the holiness of God. What a challenge that is for a church plan or for an existing church. One of the big challenges I see for church plants and churches more generally is missional perseverance. Oftentimes, uh, we lose our way, we lose our focus in the church today. And uh, sometimes we get lazy, missionally lazy. Now, that can happen at a corporate level, certainly, and we see many denominations where that's testified to week in and week out, where they have lost their missional focus. But it also happens individually. And I think we have to admit that one of the big challenges that we face in the church today, and in, of course, a church plant, is that we have people who are, are missionally lazy oftentimes. There's this uh, thing called the 80-20 rule. It was, uh, it was theorized by an, an Italian economist in the 19th century that about uh, 80% of the work in organizations is usually done by about 20% of the people. Right? And when we look at the church, we have to admit that that's often true. That you get 20 people who are really faithful and really buy in in a congregation and about 80 more who just come every couple of weeks on Sunday and sit in the pews or the seats. And that to them is church life. That's a real challenge. That, that missional laziness individually, that consumer mentality is a real challenge for planting churches and it's also a real challenge for existing churches. Now, at this point, you're starting to get tired of all these examples, especially these examples that step on your toes, and you're wondering why in a sermon where we're going to begin a, a series in First and Second Thessalonians, these two letters that Paul wrote to this young church plant that he had planted, why am I bringing all this stuff up? What relevance does it have? What, what does it have to do with, with anything? Well, the answer is it has a ton to do with these two letters that we're going to look at over the course of this summer. See, all the challenges that I just outlined, the ones that we face when we're thinking about planting a church, or when we look back on our history and recognize that we encountered all of those challenges, were faced by the church at Thessalonica. They ministered in an environment which was often hostile to the good news. They were often often tempted to conform to the society around them, take their cues about how to live from the greater society or culture that they existed in. And uh, they were beginning to experience what I would consider to be a kind of missional laziness. People had lost focus or were beginning to lose focus. And that's our context in these two letters. That's what Paul was writing 
to address when he wrote these letters to this young church plant. Challenges just like the challenges which we face nearly 2,000 years later. Isn't that interesting? Man, the Bible is so relevant. I mean, there is nothing new under the sun. The challenges then are like the challenges now, and we have a lot to learn from these letters over the course of this summer. So I hope you'll come and take in the lessons that we can learn here and be transformed by understanding God's word and what it means to be the church as we follow after him. Come and soak in this wisdom from 2,000 years ago. Well, without further ado, let's actually get into the text. That was all introduction to this greater sermon series, where we're moving, where we're going. So now you know. Let's dig into the Word of God here. First Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at all of it this morning, but there are only 10 verses. So it shouldn't be too much. Let's dig in. First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read aloud. You can read along on your personal handheld device or an actual Bible, which... I really am preferable. I I like Bibles, the actual books, or it's going to be on the screen up here too. But this is the word of God. So take it in with me here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of God which is to come. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. And I'll invite you now before we begin to study the word together as a community to pray with me for our time in it. Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this letter and the one that follows it. I thank you for the wisdom that you have preserved for us here. And I ask, and we ask, that you might teach us from it today. Help us to understand. Uh, Help us to grow in relationship to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we grow closer to you, help us to be transformed. Enable us to be more Christ-like in the ways that we live our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, as we look at this first chapter, these 10 verses, we can separate them into three what I consider to be pretty helpful categories. So here are the three categories that we're going to kind of look at here this morning. First, we find a greeting. And we want to look at the greeting that Paul has here in this letter to begin. Second, we find a prayer. So we'll study the prayer that he says he's praying for this church, this church plant. And third, we find a model, a lot about being an example. And so we want to look at that. So a greeting, a prayer, a model. We're going to learn a bunch from each of these three. Let's look at a greeting, the greeting that begins this letter. Now, some of my first career as an English teacher is going to come out here in the passion that I have about letters. I think letter writing is a lost art form today. I think emails have killed it. I think text messages are really destroying it. We just don't write letters like we used to. And if you don't believe me, then just go back and read some of the letters that were written during the Civil War. I watched Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War uh, a number of years ago. And I tell you what, that, that documentary was so eye-opening when it came to letters and how people write letters. You would get common soldiers writing home during the war. And they were letters written like it was Shakespeare. They were so beautiful. The prose just popped off the page. It was like reading poetry. It really was beautiful. And one of the things that was so drastically different in these letters were the salutations, right? The beginning greetings in the letters. So you would get things like this, my dearest Hazel, or dear mother and father, I'm still in the land of the living. This is the way that these letters were beginning. The salutations were were given in this way. And, And just think about how we write emails today. Something like, hey guys, or hello buddy. That's especially, I I made fun of David Barreca. You guys all know David Barreca. He is always saying, hey, buddy. So nothing like these salutations that you get in these older letters, right? Salutations in Paul's day were more formal than they are now, for sure. They mattered. And they especially mattered in the ways that they differed from the normal way that they were given. And the salutation that Paul gives here has some notable differences from normal letters of his day. It was typical for the writer in the ancient world to begin with three things. The sender, the recipient, and the greeting. The sender, the recipient, and the greeting. And Paul included each of these three in his letter, but he expands the last two significantly. So so look at verse 1 with me. Look at this salutation. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Those are the senders, right? That's very normal. Nothing different yet. To the church of the Thessalonians... In God the Father and the Lord Jesus 
Christ. Those are the recipients. But instead of just saying to the church of the Thessalonians, which would have been normal, he adds these prepositional phrases in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk about that in a second. So those are the recipients. And then here's the greeting. Grace to you and peace. He doesn't just say hello. He doesn't just say greetings. He uses two very significant words. Grace to you and peace. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but what Paul does here, what he changes or expands in this greeting is significant. He's highlighting the glorious identity of the Thessalonians. He's stressing their transformed gospel status. He's telling them who they are. He doesn't want them to forget who they are. Now, I could write a letter to my son or my daughter. I got a lot of, a lot of children. Right? And I could write a letter and I could say, Dear Josiah or Dear Esther or Dear Miriam or Dear Ezra or Dear Silas. It, it almost makes me tired just saying that. I would have to write so many letters to all my kids. I could do that. And it would be a salutation that communicated some warmth, wouldn't it? Some warmth to my son or my daughter. But it's not the same as if I said, my dear son, Josiah. My dear daughter, Esther. That's a different kind of salutation, isn't it? That's a different thing altogether, a different greeting because it really leverages the family relationship that we have. It really imports their identity as it relates to me. They are my son. They are my daughter. I love them. They are so dear to me. That would be a greeting that highlights an intimacy of identity. An intimacy of identity. And friends, that is what Paul is saying to this young congregation at Thessalonica. He's telling them that they have a new identity because of the Lord's grace to them. Grace, right? Unearned merit, unearned benefit. Grace to them. And what does that grace bring? Peace with God. Grace and peace is theirs in Jesus Christ. But that's not where Paul stops. The identity goes further. It's not just that you were rebels and now you're at peace. It's not even that you were enemies and now you were friends. No, Paul goes further. He says, you are in God the Father. Think about that for a second. Your family. God is your father. And Jesus is your older brother. Or you can pick whatever relational metaphor you want. There are all kinds in scripture to describe our relationship to God. We sang about some in the songs leading up to this sermon. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. There is a family intimacy now between the Thessalonian church and God. That's their identity. 
And that is profound. It's really important. Friends, what Paul is saying to this congregation is that they have a new identity. A profound identity. One that can never be changed through faith in Jesus Christ. They are sons and daughters of the Most High God. They have a brother who has made the way for them. Purchased salvation for them paid the price for them and he loves them and God loves them they are precious I don't know if you think of yourselves in those terms but if you're a believer this is who you are Uh, this identity wasn't just something for the Thessalonians or, or the people in Paul's day or some ancient thing no this is for today if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this passage has been preserved in the scriptures to tell you, you also through faith in Jesus Christ are a child of God. Your identity is wrapped up with the creator of the universe. What an awesome thing. What an encouraging thing this is. And so we don't want to just move too quickly past this greeting, uh, these salutations. They are significant. Well, let's move to the next part of this passage. Uh, There we find a prayer. Look at what Paul says. We're going to begin in verse 2. He writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And there's a ton here, and I'm not going to be able to cover it all. But sometimes we read passages like this one in the Bible, and we don't stop. We just kind of roll on by. We read that Paul is praying for the Thessalonian church and we think something like this. Oh, that is really encouraging that Paul would pray for them. We think of it wrongly. We think it's just merely something like if I ran into somebody who was in the midst of trouble that I knew and I looked at him and I said, hey, you know, I've been praying for you. It really just means, you know, I've been thinking about you in our culture. You know, I care about you. And indeed, What Paul is praying here definitely communicates that he cares deeply for them, but that just merely scratches the surface. There's so much more to this prayer. Think about the content of it. What is this apostle praying for them? Well, he's thankful to God for their, quote, work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We can learn so much from the content of this prayer. We can learn a lot about how we should prioritize what we pray for in the Christian life. We can learn here from Paul. Oftentimes when we pray, we pray that someone who is ill would be made well, which is a very biblical thing to pray for, and we should pray for that. So do not hear me saying that that's not something that's worth praying for. It is. Or sometimes when we have requests, prayer requests, somebody wants to know what they can pray for us. When we think about physical things, you know, 
I need a job, or I'm lonely and I want to find a spouse. We think about things like that, which are all really wonderful things to pray for. We should also pray for those. So don't hear me saying that we shouldn't pray for those kinds of things or ask for people to pray for us for those kinds of things. We should pray for them. But there are things we should be praying for above those kinds of things. Those are important, but there are higher priority types of prayers. So, Think about it this way. The Thessalonians were a persecuted church. Benjamin alluded to that even when he was doing the offertory. They were in a very hostile city. And when Paul goes there to preach the gospel, you can look at this in Acts chapter 17, the first nine verses. He goes there, he preaches the gospel, and he is completely rejected. And the gospel is completely rejected, and the city is in an uproar. Right? And there's a riot that starts. And it gets violent. And a guy named Jason gets drugged from his home and he he and some others are lucky to escape with their lives. Now, I'm sure, I want you to know this, I'm sure Paul prayed for their protection, for their safety. I'm sure he had those kinds of prayers in mind when he prayed for the Thessalonian church. But in the beginning of this letter... That's not what he shares that he's praying for. Not first and foremost, at least. Instead, when he writes to them, he emphasizes his prayers for their spiritual growth in Jesus Christ. He tells them, above safety, above physical protection, what he's really praying is that they would grow in Christ-likeness, that their faith would be built up. So let's go back to Jefferson City for a second. And I mentioned it, right? So often our prayers for places like that, whether it be a hurricane or a tornado, is just merely with the physical. But I think this this prayer from Paul challenges us to think more deeply. We need to be praying that whatever tragedy, whatever difficulty, whatever persecution it is that has broken out, that the people in the church and the people in the community where that's happening would be built up spiritually, would understand better the gospel, the salvation that is offered them in Jesus Christ, would grow closer to God and look more like their Savior if they're a follower of Jesus Christ. That is not just a temporary prayer. That is one that has eternal value. So when you pray, are you praying first and foremost for your faith to be communicated through your actions, right? Works of faith. For your life in relationship to the gospel calling upon you to be an intense labor of love. For your hope in Jesus Christ's return to be steadfast and unwavering. Like, sometimes we think, you know, Lord, I want you to come back, but I kind of want to go on vacation first. 
or retire first or enjoy this or that thing in this life first. But when you think about the Lord's return, it should be better than any of those things. Are you praying that your hope for that great day when Jesus returns, that it would be bigger and better to you than any of these earthly things that you get to experience, which are good, which are nice, but which pale in comparison to the blessing of being face-to-face with our Lord. How are you praying? I think that's an important question. I think Paul would challenge us to learn how to pray by looking in the scriptures. So today, when you look at this prayer that Paul prays, learn something about how you should pray. We should pray like this. For the eternal things, those should be paramount. For salvation, for righteousness, for the gospel to move forward, those should be paramount. Is this the way that you're praying? If not, consider enriching your prayer life by putting some of these things into practice regularly. Well, let's move now to our last section, which is a model. Look at what Paul says at the close of today's passage, beginning in verse 5, actually the second portion of verse 5. So halfway into verse 5, he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In these last few verses of today's passage, Paul talks about being an example to the Thessalonians, doesn't he? He says, we live this way around you And you became imitators of us. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, we live this way among you and you imitated us. But now, the way that you lived has gone out into the world. So that believers everywhere are hearing about the way that you live. The way you turned from idols and turned to the true God. And worshipped him. And so much so that when we show up places, we don't really have to recount what happened in Thessalonica. They already know. They're already celebrating it. What an example you have been, he says, to the world. Now, here's something that's really interesting. We could easily miss where this begins. But in this passage, it's pretty clear it didn't start with Paul. It didn't start with Timothy or Silas, Silvanus, Silas. It starts with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have become imitators of us and therefore, could be inserted there, therefore the Lord. The Lord. That's where it began. Uh, The image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, that's where the example starts. 
I think about this, and I think this is something that we forget oftentimes in the church, how important examples are. How in, in God's economy, discipleship really happens through living with others and seeing the model of faithfulness. That's how I've learned. That's how I've been impacted so often. At a point when my youngest son Silas was learning to talk, he began using with regularity uh, the word actually, which is really strange to hear on a toddler's lips. And he would begin almost every sentence with the word actually. Actually, I would like some milk. Actually, I would like some chocolate milk. Actually, I would like to go poopy. These things came out of his mouth. And, and as you can imagine, like when somebody's talking like a toddler talks for the most part, but you're using the word actually, you begin to ask yourself, where did he learn how to use this word? Like who taught him this word? And so Natalie and I started thinking about it. And pretty soon what dawned on us is that we use the word actually a lot, probably way too much. So we had been using that word. Hey, he just picked it up. He learned by example. And he, he learned really well. He would use it in context. He would use it correctly. Now, think about this. I didn't have to sit down with him and do a vocabulary lesson. Like, I'm going to teach, or I'm going to teach Silas how to use the word actually in context today. You know, and define it. This is going to prepare him for the SAT. I didn't have to do that. No, my example was enough to teach him that. And unfortunately, my example is enough to teach him many bad habits as well. It just happens. And this is how discipleship works too. We learn to follow Jesus by example. I have a number of Christians whom I admire and I try to model my living off of. I see their faithfulness. These are older men oftentimes in my life. I see the way they live faithfully and I'm like, I want to see that Christ-like characteristic in me. I learn from them. What's interesting is when you start thinking about this, because I guarantee the same thing happened in their lives too. They learned from watching somebody else. And if we really start to think big picture, that line goes all the way back to our Lord. Now he had some disciples, didn't he? And they learned from watching him and living with him. And then they had disciples who learned from watching them and living with them. And then slowly this lineage is built up of faithful people learning how to follow Christ by watching others follow Christ. Which is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 we find something very similar that Paul writes. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And isn't this the way of discipleship? Benjamin encouraged me to think about saying this, and I'm going to say it right now. I think it's a really good thing to say. If you don't have somebody that you look up to in the faith, somebody who you think, I want to see those characteristics in my life, somebody you're following as they follow Jesus Christ, you need that. So if you're in this church and you're a new believer, seek somebody out who you say, that person The way they follow Jesus, it's beautiful. No, they're not perfect, but they're following faithfully. Seek that person out. 
And, and honestly, I don't care how old you are. You can continue to do this until the day you're called home. This is discipleship. Look at those who have gone before. Thank the Lord for them. And as you see them faithfully following Jesus Christ, you do the same. That is what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. That's what he says also in 1 Thessalonians. He's talking about learning to follow Jesus by example. Example is so, so important. Friends, plagiarize the faithful habits of those Christians who've gone before you. And I use that word plagiarize intentionally. Has a negative connotation, doesn't it? Oh, God would love it if you would plagiarize all the things that Jesus Christ did. You don't have to give him credit even. Just, just act like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Or love like the faithful who've gone before you. Plagiarize their actions. What a beautiful witness the church would have. Honestly, we talk about us being a church plant. If there weren't faithful people who'd gone before us, we wouldn't exist. And we're talking about planting a church. And if we don't do that, then there will be people who are not impacted by our Christian lives. We are to be disciples who make disciples. We are to be a church that founds new churches. I hope we take that calling seriously. You know, I think about this church. I've been here for seven years and there are people in this church who are a great example to me. Who've been beautiful models of the Christian life. I think of many people in this church and I'm not going to call them out by name because if I did, they would blush. But people who have suffered terribly yet have done so with joy and faithfulness and hope. What an encouragement. What an example for me. Even to the point of death, people praising their Lord as they are dying of cancer. What an incredible example. What a model. This is to be what the church is all about in deep relationship. I think about, um, I've lost my place. Wouldn't you know it? Like you're coming to that like really exciting moment at the end of the sermon. Everybody's going to be saved. And you mess it up. And the Lord's like, huh, that's okay. I got this one. Oh, this is what I was going to say. The Lord better have it because I don't. I have no clue what I'm doing up here. Now, I think about those people. And I think what an encouragement to fight the good fight, right? To, to finish the race. Second Timothy chapter 4. Do not take for granted relationships in the local church because it is those relationships that God often uses to help you persevere, to grow in Christ-likeness. And so, I, I just as I close, I just want to say, you know what? Being an example, being a model is a huge part of relationship to Jesus Christ. Christ came to be the image of the invisible God for us. And we're called to look at him, to gaze at him in the Bible. We should do that. But we're also called to follow those who faithfully follow Christ. Don't take that for granted. Be in deep, intense, loving, meaningful relationships in the local church and see what God will do. He will do beautiful and wonderful things 
Amen? Amen. Let me pray to close our time together in God's word. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you, we honor you because you've got this. You've got this. You open up your word to us. You teach us. It is not dependent upon me or anyone else here. The gospel goes forward with power. That's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians were the evidence. And so too can this church be the evidence of your power and your might working in this world. And may we be that very thing, that example, that model to a world that needs to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.